Well, good morning, Berean Bible Church. It's a joy to be uh, back here with you again. We spent some time last week talking about the glory of God, the glory of God. And that's an inexhaustible topic. You'll be searching that out the rest of your life. You will get to experience it in fullness, though, in glory forever with Him, exalted in the heavenly places. But for the moment, I think we should pick up their conversation about the glory of God. It's, it's fitting that we continue on, and, and maybe we even ask this question, who is the king of glory? Who is the king of glory? What we're going to find out from Psalm 24 is that the king of glory is the one who holds three special gems which line his crown of glory. And I want to take you there to that scene in Psalm 24. Royalty in our age, they have their own gems. We have royalty on this earth, people who prayed themselves around with all kinds of pomp and circumstance. We saw this most recently on May 19th at the royal wedding between Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. The streets were lined with all kinds of people. Kensington Palace was fully dressed up. The royals put on all their fancy garb, the carriages, the horses, the queen's guards were out in their red jackets and their big black puffy hats. And St. George's Chapel was, was filled with people. The event had all the pomp and circumstance of, of royalty that they could possibly create. The event was seen by two billion people around the world. Thousands of people lined the streets of London. There was some discrimination, though. Only 600 people got in to see the actual um, wedding ceremony performed. And then even a more private reception only saw 200 people celebrating with these royals. You may be interested to know that some of the gems of royalty were on display, like the diamond tiara that was worn by Miss Merkel. It was made in 1932, first for Queen Mary. The beauty that attended Mrs. Merkel's hair and her face that day only cost $13,000. And the veil took 500 hours to make. The dress, though, you know, it came in under $300,000, $262,000. And you can imagine with, with this being showcased, being on display. There's royalty, there's pomp, there's circumstance. This is fit for a kingly celebration. And I want to use this to just to get our minds on kingliness, on royalty, on celebration. That's where we're headed in Psalm 24. To get our minds on a royal celebration, on, on the gems of royalty being presented. What are the most brilliant treasures which royalty can put on display publicly? That's a great question. We need a festive atmosphere. The arrival of the king is at hand. The celebration is about to begin. Who is the king of glory? We'll soon find out. And what we need to consider today is when he arrives, what treasures will he display? What are the gems of his royalty? What are the trophies of his greatness? In order that we know the king of glory, let's turn to the text of Psalm 24. And seek to discern the three treasures of his glory. Psalm 24. This is a messianic text. This psalm is a declaration of the kingship of Jesus Christ. And as we read through it, I want you to see and hear the three treasures of his glory. I'll read the text to you now. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. The world and those who dwell in it. For he founded it upon the seas and establish it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood 
and has not sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. From powerful declaration to the tension of those questions, turning into glorious answers about salvation, and then the climax, the jubilant celebration, the return of the king. The king is coming. He's coming home, victorious in battle. Open the gates. Let the king come in. This is a powerful psalm, and it gives us three treasures of his glory. The glory of creation, the glory of salvation, and the glory of victory. That'll be our outline as we walk through the text, looking at three treasures of his glory. The glory of creation, salvation, and victory. And this is our objective this morning, to glorify and know the king of glory, which will be done as we know the treasures that attend his glory. In looking into Psalm 24, we need to understand two important contexts that the psalm sits in. Two contexts. I want to look at these before we jump into our outline. The biblical context is important. Where it sits, where does Psalm sit? Psalm 24 in the Psalter. And next would be the historical context, where we ask questions about what gave the occasion for this writing of David. First, let's look at the biblical context. You've got Psalm 24 sitting there. To its left is Psalm 23 and Psalm 22. These are a trilogy of Psalms. Psalm 23, you know well, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Are you as familiar, though, with Psalm 22? It should be to you. It's quoted or alluded to in the New Testament 15 times. It tells the story of the suffering servant. Maybe you've heard verse 16. For the dogs have surrounded me and a band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Or verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothes they cast lots. It is said of the early church that Psalm 22 is the fifth gospel because of the accuracy in which Christ's life is portrayed. So here we see Psalm 22 begins a trilogy of psalms. Psalm 22, the suffering servant. Psalm 23, the loving shepherd. And Psalm 24, the conquering king of glory. This is where we find Psalm 24 in its biblical context, but we also want to explore the historical context as well. When we think of historical context, you need to ask the question, when did David write this psalm? What was the occasion? What purpose this psalm? Scholars love to dig into these kind of questions and root around in, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament history to come up with an answer. And I would just tell you, there's nothing definitive that comes out of this, but there is an occasion that really warrants some attention. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 6. We'll join the scholars on a little rabbit trail for a minute to try to identify the moment in David's life 
when Psalm 24 may have been penned. Now, I want you to remember Psalm 24 as we read through this coming text in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Psalm 24 had that powerful declaration of the Lord as the creator. There were questions about salvation, that question, who can stand before God? The conclusion that takes you into a massive scene of celebration where we can feel the people gathered, bands playing, people rejoicing, singing, great praise and joy. Now, read with me 2 Samuel 6, verses 12 to 15. Now, it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And so it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and sounds of the trumpet. Okay, here we have the scene. The occasion is the return of the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. This results in massive celebration, great joy and singing. Could this be a match for Psalm 24, the return of the Ark into Jerusalem? Well, it kind of makes sense. Lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up. Let the King of glory come in. But why does he have an animal sacrifice here in this passage? What was that all about? And what is the nature of that kind of detail? After six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. Well, look in the text back up to verse 3. You see, God told David that David wouldn't be allowed to build his temple where he would dwell, but Solomon would be allowed. And David wants to go around collecting the furniture that's required, and one big piece of furniture is missing. It's the Ark of the Covenant. It's been in the house of Abinadab for a hundred years. And David thought, well, I'm going to help Solomon out. I'm going to get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it back here. It's the right thing to do. So he gathers up 30,000 men, and they go to the house of Abinadab to recover the ark, but they ran into a massive problem. And in 2 Samuel 6, 3, you can see that they placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. But when they came into the threshing floor of Nacon in verse 6, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah. And God struck him down, for, there was no re- for he was irreverent. And he died there before the ark of God. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. He had to leave the house, or the, the Ark of the Covenant, in the house of Obed-Edom. And he was really distraught at this killing of Uzzah by God. It was a powerful demonstration of the holiness and reverence that are required to be in the presence of the Ark. However, this wasn't the first time that the Ark was mishandled or mistreated. You can see again the wrath of God coming down onto another group of people in 1 Samuel 6 that gap from 1 Samuel 6 over to 2 Samuel 6, consider that the ark ended up in the house of Abinadab because of there was a great failure at another house in another city, the city of Beth Shemesh. And it was in Beth Shemesh in 1 Samuel 6 
that 50,070 men were struck down by God because they chose to go up to the ark and lift the lid and look inside. And that simple act was treachery to the Lord. After this tragedy, these 50,000 plus men dying, the people, the men of Beth Shemeth gathered and they said this in 1 Samuel 6 verse 20. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? You see, there's our question. From Psalm 24, who is able to stand before the Lord? It is a question squarely looking into holiness. And perhaps you know the story of how the ark arrived in Beth Shemesh. It's a very funny story. It involves God's providence and allowing two oxen to be pulling a cart that the Philistines had set up to test God to see if they were the ones that were being punished by God or if it was all random chance. Their God Dagon fell on his face and his head and hands broke off before the God, our God Yahweh, who was there in the form of the ark. The Philistines had real trouble with him in a couple of different cities and they wanted to get rid of him, this ark. They couldn't stand in the presence of God. Well, these Old Testament realities, these historical facts... God's holiness being presented and people dying where the ark was presented. They're not just stories. They, they help us to understand that God is holy, sovereign, and supreme. And people die because of his holiness. It should make every one of us here consider this same question. Who may stand in his holy place? So 2 Samuel 6, that may be the historical background. There's a probability there. But to understand Psalm 24, we just need to jump into it. It's, it's ready for us. We can dive right into it and start to begin to hold the treasures and the gems that are there for us. And I want to do this by jumping into this outline again. We're going to answer who is the king of glory, but we need to know these three treasures of his glory. The first is the glory of creation. Let's look there now. The glory of creation. And you see this in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 24. The glory of creation. I'll read this with you now. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The Hebrew text here begins with the name Yahweh. It is front loaded in this text, the Lord. The author does this for emphasis the same way that we use an exclamation point at the end of a sentence. And what's David trying to say when he front loads this psalm with the word Yahweh, the name Yahweh, our God, that he is the source, that he is the origin of all things, that he alone is the creator and the sustainer of all life. You know, we get this from the gospel of John in the New Testament when John says in 1 John verses 1 to 3, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and apart from him. Nothing came into being that has come into being. We get a very similar sentence from the author of Hebrews who reminds us that through Jesus Christ, God made the world. This point is so loud, profound, and clear. The Lord God is the maker of everything that exists on the face of the earth. Nothing came into being except that he called it into being. And from David's pen, there's a, a particular 
note to the Psalter, a particular way that he writes these things, these parallel lines. They're a beautiful restatement of the certainties of God as a creator. In verse 1, the, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. And then again, the world and, and those who dwell in it. And this, this, this verse right here, verse 1 of Psalm 24, it comes up in 1 Corinthians 10, 26. Paul uses it there to make a defense uh, for the opportunity for us to, to do the things that we would like to do, Christian liberty. I call this the bacon burger verse. Bacon burger. You can have bacon and cow. You can have pig and cow in the same burger. It's a bacon burger verse. He's making the case, you can load on whatever you like. Just whatever you do, be thankful. And can we say thank you to Paul? You bet. Because we know whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. God's in charge. It's all His. It belongs to Him, and he, he gave it to us so that we could enjoy it. So pile it high today. Bacon burgers for everybody. Verse 2 as well declares the power of Yahweh, the power of our God to create and sustain. And I want you to read that again with me. It says, verse 2, For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. God not only put it together perfectly, rightly, good, but it is by his strength and power it continues to function. He is sustaining his creation. Get that? Sustaining. You hear a lot about sustainability today, don't you? Certainly, your workplace environment is governed by processes that are environmentally friendly, getting green certified. Do you realize what a joke this is? There are a whole lot of people, politicians and activists who love to make money off the idea that saving the planet is within the power of man. You know, and this is a twice failed piece of logic on their part. Number one, that man's creating global warming. And and number two, that man actually has the ability to fix it if it was even being created. Have they not read Genesis 8.22? God says, while the earth remains seed time and harvest and cold and heat, summer and winter and day and night, shall not cease. Have they not considered God's destructive abilities in fire, flood, volcano, and tsunami, which completely outdo any effort of humanity to try to destroy the earth? God is the provider and the sustainer. He alone gives the earth great stability. And I would remind you, that without the stability of God, science is impossible. And how many people pick up science today and use that to push back against God like that stands on its own? Are you kidding me? Science stands on God's stability. And look at the poetic way that David goes into addressing verse 2. He says, For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. This is not a foundation of water. That might be worse than building on sand. Water, though, dominates this planet, and it's essential for life. And David is here speaking poetically about God's creation. Likewise, listen to David's son Solomon discuss the creative acts of God from Proverbs 8.25. I want to read this to you. Lady Wisdom, he, he puts voice to her, Lady Wisdom, and allows Lady Wisdom to discuss God's creation. And in Proverbs 8, 27 here, he says, Lady Wisdom says, When God established the heavens, I was there. And when he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, and when he made firm the skies above, 
When the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set for the sea its boundary so that the water would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master workman, wisdom and God working together, lady wisdom personified. Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. And it's an amazing thing for me sometimes to see whether it's rationalists or atheists or even fellow Christians who are long-winded creationists, millions of years of creation, standing and looking God in the face and telling him, your word isn't accurate. We have better ideas about how this world was created. How wrong, how much of a fraud, how false. This psalm declares God's creative ability and his creative power. At Berean Bible Church, I would tell you right out of our doctrinal statement, we hold to a literal six-day ex nihilo, out-of-nothing creation account of God. We get this right out of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And here in Psalm 24, it's confirmed yet again. It is screaming, the Lord God is the designer of everything that has been made. He is the creator and king of all of creation. And everything on this creation will bow before him. That's what the psalm is screaming. He is sustaining the creation in the palm of his hand. It is firmly established, ordered, and operational, and he is sustaining it even in the face of being under the curse of sin which he put on it. The glory of creation, then, is treasure number one for the king of glory, the glory of creation. Secondly, we need to look at the glory of salvation as his second treasure that belongs to the king of glory, the glory of salvation. I would have you read with me in the text again from Psalm 24, verses 3 to 6. David says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, Jacob. Verses three to six here are about salvation. And I hope it's obvious to you that there is only one whoever had perfectly clean hands and a perfectly pure heart, who never lifted up falsehood to another and never had sworn deceitfully, who only was continually filled with righteousness and the blessing of God. There's only one. But men, we, have a broken relationship with God. How can it be fixed? How can it be overcome? And verse 3 asks the question, who? The question is, who? Who could possibly stand in the presence of the Lord? It is a question of discrimination. It is a question of access. It is an exacting question who seeks a name and a face of a person who could give hope. And for David, it is a question about holiness. Who is to say holiness is an issue 
Why holiness? Because David is considering the presence of God, to be with God on his holy hill and stand before him in his holy place. The lesson that David learned at the death of Uzziah is resounding in his mind when he writes this letter, when he writes this poem for us. Has every opportunity to be up in his, in his mind, that death. He knows none are holy. There are none who can stand before God. That thought immediately creates tension in the human heart, and rightly it should. Tension is the result of the discrimination in the question. You can feel the discrimination in the question. Can you feel the discrimination in the question? It's right there. This is discrimination on the order of the black and white bathrooms of America in the 1950s. It's discrimination on the order of Hitler killing every non-Aryan race in the 1940s. It's intense discrimination. Who? Discrimination requires evaluation. Watching, looking, checking. And who really likes to set it under evaluation? Pastor Eric passed out a memory verse chart yesterday for a few folks. Did you like evaluation? It's a little daunting at times. It's like going to the dentist for a bad checkup or for a checkup. That's bad. Tests at school, they become a strain on your brain. But what makes this discrimination right? What makes this discrimination good and just? What makes it totally unlike man-made discrimination? Holiness. Holiness makes it different. This is holiness discrimination. And, and who wants right now a holiness body scan? Anybody ready for that? Want to step through the holiness scanner? Do you want a holiness evaluation? Are there any takers? Just walk through those doors. No one. None. Why? Why do we not want a holiness evaluation for us? Because this is what you know would be found. Guilt, shame, and sin, and a constant knowledge that in you dwells no good thing, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. There are none who seek after God. Your throats are open graves. Your tongue is full of deceit. The poison of asps is under your lips. Your mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, and your feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery are in all of your ways, and the peace of God you have not known. There is no fear of God before you. You would quickly fail any holiness body scan or any holiness evaluation. You are entirely and utterly unworthy to ascend his holy hill and to stand with him in his holy place. You are unworthy. He made us and not we ourselves, and we must answer to him but we are unworthy even to be in his presence. And I hope that for you in your life, this creates great tension. I hope it creates great tension. Yet consider that these questions have another angle as well. Just in the asking of the question, just in the idea of asking, there is the prospect of a chance. There's the opportunity for hope. If there might be a slim chance, please tell me that there's a chance. And so we follow the text along and we get to a description of what a holy one, a worthy one looks like. 
Maybe this description will bring access to God. David answers his own question with the following description. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. Well, again, the tension is refreshed and renewed all over again. I don't have clean hands. I don't have a pure heart. I have given my affections to emptiness and vanity. And in my relationships, I have sought my own good ahead of the interest of others through deceit. This four-part list of the qualities of a holy man is a shorter rendition of Psalm 15, which goes much more exhaustively into who this man is who can stand before God. And from that text as well, we continually see an exacting standard of perfection. Salvation is a treasure of the King of glory because of the unrelenting call to perfection and to holiness. And yet, how could any of us ever get salvation? How could you ever turn something made black by sin and make it come out washed and clean and white as the light? How could you do that? Isaiah 1 has the answer. The answer is that God will make a way. That's the answer. God will make a way. God will provide access. Just as he demands holiness, so also he will give holiness. Listen to what the Lord says in Isaiah 18, or chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. He says, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isn't, that where this, isn't this where we sit? Covered in scarlet sin? He says, yet it can be turned into snow. And we sit red like crimson. And yet, he will make us into something spotless. The spotless white wool of a lamb. Reason with me. Does this sound like a glorious plan? Not only glorious, the only plan. For how can a man like me find my own way to salvation? It, there's a huge hinge on which this pivots on obedience or rebellion. Access to the king has been made through the way of salvation provided by the king of salvation. You know, I need more hope, though. I need more hope. I thought I got a glimpse of it there in verse 4. Can you open the hope up a little bit for me? We read in verse 5 that this one who can do these things, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Well, this is just amazing. The holiness standard of God doesn't go away, but rather we're told that blessing, this idea of blessing is something that is given. And righteousness is something that is given by God, given from the God who owns salvation, 
which could only be targeted at the rebels that walked away from him in the garden. Salvation is a treasure of God's because it is his free gift of salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Salvation is a gift of God's grace. It is unmerited, undeserved favor that he pours out onto rebels, enemies. God demands righteousness, but we find out from the text he gives it. And God demands holiness, but he also gives that as well. What he demands, he also supplies. We saw this with Moses on many occasions, but you can think of Leviticus 17.11. It's required that for payment of sin, atonement is made in blood. God allowed animal sacrifices as a provision of his grace. And then he made sure that they had all the animals that they would ever need to obey him. And then he would ultimately send his own son to be the perfect blood sacrifice. God will supply. God has supplied. God is supplying your every need for every day. He supplied in this, his son. The suffering servant from Psalm 22 is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who satisfied God's wrath towards sin. And we read next in verse 6. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, Jacob. There has always been a generation, a remnant of believers, true worshipers. There's always been a supply or an example set before us of regeneration, of those whom God has changed their wicked hearts and caused them to have a heart that beats for him. Those who genuinely would seek his face. The text is not saying that these people used their own free will to seek God and that they chose to worship God even while they were dead in their trespasses and sins. We will not allow an Arminian to come in at this point and suggest that all men equally can choose to come to God. Men simply cannot choose God. Men are blind to God. They have no natural desire, no love or affection for God. We see this in Genesis 6, 5, Jeremiah 17, 9. How can a deceitfully and desperately wicked heart ever desire the holiness of God? It cannot and it will not, but God, but God, the king of salvation, the owner, the possessor of salvation, who has this in his crown of glory, salvation in the crown of glory. He is the one who will give mercy and grace to help in time of need. He can choose of his own free will to perform on a man the heart surgery required for holiness. And he's done it time and time again. Ezekiel eleven nineteen says this, and I will give to them one heart and put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people and I shall be their God. But as for those whose hearts go after their detestable things and, and abominations, I will bring their conduct down on their heads, declares the Lord. This is regeneration. 
and discrimination. Not all will be saved. God must regenerate a man that the man would choose to love God, to have a clean heart and pure hands, and to not speak deceitfully, and to not chase after and worship other gods. He must regenerate that man without regeneration, which is an act only done by God. All men would continually remain dead. The miracle is that God chose to regenerate anyone. He chose to regenerate some real unregenerates like us. David knows about regeneration because regeneration happened to David. So when David is talking about a generation of those who seek the face of God, this is not an ethnic thing to him. This is not discrimination based on nationality, hair, eyes, nose, DNA. It is a regeneration thing. It is a regeneration, an act that God performs on a dead human being. David fully agrees with Paul in Romans 9, verses 6 through 8, when he says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Brothers and sisters, that's you and I, the regenerate. The promise is regeneration. The promise is new birth, to be born again, like Nicodemus found out in John chapter 3. Yet where Paul makes Isaac the example in Romans 9, here in Psalm 24, David makes Jacob the example. And why Jacob? Why Jacob? Why is he put forward as a, a kind or a type of person that has the qualities that match the heart of God? Why pick him? He's got an ugly past full of lies and deception and great amounts of fear come out of Jacob. But then in Genesis 32, Jacob wrestles with God. They wrestled all night until the Lord told him, let me go for the dawn is breaking. And Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he did bless him. He gave him the name Israel because he wrestled with God and prevailed. And he was regenerated. He was given a heart that would follow God. The only way that you ever wanted to wrestle with God, the only way that you want to entertain a conversation about holiness is if God regenerated you first. And he did this against your own choosing. And this has happened to the whole generation or this whole group of people True worshipers of God who know that salvation is God's choice. And this is the second treasure that belongs to the king of glory. Salvation belongs to the king of glory. And it is in his crown of glory. But third, we need to look at the treasure of his glory that is the glory of victory. Number three, the glory of victory. Let us read again the final portion of Psalm 24, verses 7 to 10. It says this in this massive celebration scene. It says this. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. 
Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. This is singing. It is the singing of a victory celebration. The triumphant warrior king has returned from battle. His enemies have been vanquished. And the people are filled with enthusiastic cheer. The city is full of energy. The joy and energy that accompany anticipated arrival of a mighty king. Loved by the people who's awesome in battle. And has claimed victory yet again. A perfect record of victory. This would be a cheer or a song called out by a cantor, a single voice. And it requires an audience with a loud, strong, and proud voice to call back all of the answers. People who know who the king is. People who want to declare who the king is. To use their mouth and their voice and their life to cheer for this king. And to bring him and call him into the city. Very few events in our generation have a similar atmosphere to what's being called down here. We spoke about the wedding of the royals. Today marks the 37th anniversary of those other royals that were married back in the early 80s. Princess Charles and Diana were married 37 years ago. Maybe we could compare the atmosphere of those royal weddings, or maybe we could compare the presidential inaugurations. Maybe at your high school convocations, the football team was brought in with a whole bunch of cheering. But this doesn't even come close. The the football cheering doesn't even come close to the cheering that is done for the king of glory. Please just imagine the city is packed with people. All have come out to see their king. They call out to the gates of the city so as to personify the gates. You gates, open up. Swing wide open. Prepare a way. Make room. The king is coming in with all of his glory. With all of the bounty that he has secured, he's coming in. The question is presented, who is the king of glory? This is really rhetorical. Everyone knows, but it's presented anyway. Why? Because it gives the occasion to get loud and shout out with all of your might. The answer, the awesome answer that everyone knows. And the answer is the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. The king is a warrior directly participating in the battle and winning. There are times when military service was a prerequisite to be considered the king of a nation. And not just service in in the armed forces, in the military, but victory in battle. Such is the case here. There is a king of glory who is the greatest warrior And he has been victorious in every battle. And he has found victory yet again. And the people are proud to call him their king. Just as Jesus is our king. Victorious in battle. The one who conquered our wicked, sin-filled heart. So much so, they want to call out to him that the crowds are not done with their cheering and shouting. So the call goes out again, lift up your head, O gates, lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. 
And the response gets the whole crowd stirred up a second time as the cantor calls out to everybody, who is the king of glory? And everybody resounds back. We know the king of glory, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. He is the Lord of hosts. Lord Savaioth, the Lord of many, the Lord of armies of armies, myriads of myriads. Victory is the treasure of the king of glory. He has victory in all that he's done. You see, Jesus is creator. Jesus Christ is the creator. Jesus is the perfect one who met all the holiness challenges that we fail at. It is he who can stand alone in the presence of God, Revelation 5. And victory is in him alone. And I hope you see that the parallel of this text, the direct analogy to your own heart being the temple into which the king of glory desires to return and celebrate victory. Has the king of glory had victory over your heart? Is it possible to keep out the king if he wants to conquer your heart? And if he has conquered your heart, do you daily cry out, swing open your gates, ancient doors, throw open your heart. The king has conquered here and he is returning. Allow him to come in. There's another parallel. This text has another parallel. It's a prophetic parallel and a literal parallel. Perhaps it was written for the return of the ark. Maybe this psalm was. But I want you to consider another use of this psalm. And maybe it, maybe it was largely prophetic. Turn to Zechariah 9.9. 9. Turn in your Bible to Zechariah 9.9. 9. It presents us with another occasion for this type of incredible celebration. For a city full of joy and anticipation. And it's also likely that you don't know this about Psalm 24. And I'll mention this before we get into this. But Psalm 24 was read as a liturgy on the first day of the week in Jerusalem for years and years by the priests who oversaw the temple. Psalm 24 read on the first day of the week in Jerusalem. And as you look at Zechariah 9.9, what event is this describing to us? The text says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What event is being prophesied here in Zechariah? The triumphal entry of Jesus. Where to? Into the city of Jerusalem. Now turn in your Bibles to Matthew 21. Consider the scene as the prophecy from Zechariah gets fulfilled. And as I read this to you, I want you to consider that as Christ is coming down the mountain here on Sunday, this event happened on Palm Sunday. Sunday, the first day of the week. The liturgy that was read in the temple on the day that Jesus rode a donkey down the Mount of Olives was none other than Psalm 24. Read with me this account. Matthew 21, verse 1. And when they approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage, at the Mount of Olives, when 
Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say to them, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, saying, Say to the daughters of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coat on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the palm trees and spreading them in the road, and the crowds going on ahead of him, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirring, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And you wonder, just as I do, and you wish, that someone there, even one, heard that reading of Psalm 24 in the temple and whispered to themselves, even quietly in their own heart, the Lord of hosts. He is the one. He, that one there, is the King of glory. This is our King of glory. Three treasures are crowning the King of glory. All of creation, the salvation of men, and this incredible record of perfect victory. When you see the king of glory, see him adorned with all of his splendor and be sure to see him crowned with all three of these treasures. Let's pray. King of glory, Lord Jesus Christ, it is the cry of our hearts to hear a psalm like this and to be reminded of the call to fling wide open the gates from the city inside of which you have recaptured and taken control of. May all of us today fling wide open the gates where you have made salvation in us, the wicked, the wretched, the unworthy, those without clean hands and a pure heart. Help us to fling wide open the gates that your glory would be made known through us We're so pleased to know you, to know your salvation. What an incredible gift of grace you've bestowed on us. We thank you for this psalm and we recognize you as our King of glory. Amen.